Thank you very much. Nice to have a woohoo in the midst of that. Um, if you're visiting for the first time and you're not used to church, my name's Rich and I'm one of the leaders of the church. And I do want to talk to us just for a few minutes about Easter and kind of get to the bottom of it a little bit. A, a kind of question that is worth asking yourselves just as I get going is probably what do you think Easter is all about? There was um, a little survey recently amongst school children. I think they were probably fairly small school children by the results. Um, fully one third of the children surveyed put down what is the meaning of Easter and they said it was the birthday of the Easter bunny. (laughs) Education system is ploughing on faultlessly, isn't it, today? Many people, though, uh, would perhaps have a little bit more level of information than that, but still put it down as what's Easter about. It's a kind of a celebration of spring. It's the winter ending. We talk about chocolate bunnies. We talk about eggs and little chicks. And is it some kind of way of thinking, oh, it's, it's an optimistic looking forward for the rest of the year? Even people perhaps like yourselves that might have some kind of understanding of the religious roots of Easter would still maybe be familiar with a story somehow of Jesus rising from a tomb, but would put it down as an inspiring message of hope in despair. Maybe we could see the message of Easter is that it's a kind of parable, that when things look the darkest, there's hope. When things experience failure, success can spring through. If only you truly believe it in your heart that these things can happen. Maybe Easter, the message of Easter is just one of, look, let's just keep hoping for the best when things are difficult. You never know how it's going to turn out. The the Prime Minister David Cameron spoke uh, of this subject recently and said, Easter is all about remembering the importance of change, responsibility, and doing the right thing for the good of our children. And today that message matters more than ever. Is that really the message? Is that really the message of Easter? The Christians are chuckling here. Some people are just very comfortable with the idea of, yeah, we, we, there's this idea of Jesus rising. It's a, you know, it's a kind of a sense of hope. It's a sense of maybe his teachings and his ideals live on. Maybe the sense of the Easter messages we carry within our hearts, the inspiration that Jesus gave us. Maybe people are even comfortable with the idea of the spirit of Easter. is kind of Jesus' spirit lives within us in some way. It carries on. It rolls down the ages. We venerate him. Maybe spiritually he's with us. Some people even put it down to, this is making a lot of noise. Is this me or, or, or what, what, am I, what have I done wrong? The Jack. What's he got to do with it? <laughs> do you want me to fiddle with it? I don't mind. Is that better? Yeah? Should we plough on like that? Yeah, we'll plough on like that. If it happens again, then we'll switch to Jack. (laughs) So there's a sense that the message of Easter could be, you know, Jesus is risen, this is with it. His spirit lives, lives, lives on. Maybe he lives in our hearts. Maybe he lives in our communities. In a similar way that, you know, people often talk about, you know, dad's no longer with us, but he's, you know, he's very much here in spirit. And, and, you know, I, I know Nana's looking down on me from above and she's proud of what I'm doing. People view the risenness of Jesus in that kind of way. And these are all very comfortable, kind of reassuring ways of understanding Easter, aren't they? That's often why we kind of take them. I would like to put it to us this morning. If your view of Easter is comforting, then you probably haven't understood it. The real meaning of Easter is something far more shocking than just hope in despair 
and someone looking down on us from above and approving. I'm going to read a passage uh, from Luke's Gospel, one of the earliest accounts of the life and death and alleged resurrection of Jesus, that I think will help us get a bit of a better handle than David Cameron's comments on what Easter's really all about. It's going to pop up behind me, but I will read it to you. It's from Luke chapter 24. We're going to start at verse 36, and it says, while they were still talking about this, in other words, this is the disciples together, Jesus' disciples, and they've gathered together after his death, and after these kind of strange occurrences to do with Jesus' resurrection have started appearing, and people are starting to say, do you know what, Jesus actually is, is, is alive, and his disciples gathered together to talk about this. Whilst they were talking about it, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, peace be with you. They were startled and frightened, thinking that they saw a ghost. He said to them, why are you troubled and why do doubts rise in your minds? Look at my hands and my feet. It is I myself. Touch me and see. A ghost does not have flesh and bones as you see I have. And when he'd said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. And while they still did not believe it, because of joy and amazement, he asked them, do you have anything to eat? They gave him a piece of broiled fish and he took it and ate it in their presence. I want us to see that one of the things that we cannot do is try and tame Easter. We try and tame Easter when we boil it down into something comfortable, safe, reassuring, and something that perhaps fits close to our worldview. But the real Easter, as these disciples discovered, is something that tears our worldview apart. The message of Easter is not hope from ashes. It's not joy in despair. It's not spring follows winter. The real message of Easter is straight down the line, Jesus literally rose from the dead. And that's what I want to talk about just for a few minutes, the fact that literally, having been crucified and physically killed, Jesus literally came back from the dead. Everything you would think to understand by coming back from the dead, that's what happened to Jesus. And I want us to look at three areas. The first one I want us to see is that Easter is not spiritualized. We try and tame Easter too often by spiritualizing it away, by taking this line that there's a risenness and there's a a spirit and an ideal that lives on. I want us to see that this passage is hammering home to us very clearly. Jesus physically rose from the dead. We can't go down this line of it was a spiritual occurrence. We can't go down that line with any intellectual integrity. It may seem nice to our hearts, but we're throwing our minds away if we want to tell ourselves that Easter is all about a spiritual resurrection. And many people like this idea of a spiritual resurrection because it allows us to put whatever we kind of choose onto the Easter events. It allows us to put our own kind of version of spirituality onto it. If we people that believe in reincarnation, we can talk about, you know, maybe the spirit of Jesus reincarnated. If we like to believe in karma, we can talk about karma kind of settling itself out as Jesus came through. If we like to believe that when we die, we cross over to the other side and we can still connect with people and it's all just kind of the same, but with a little bit difference between us, we can say that that's what was going on here with Jesus. Even Jesus' own disciples, the guys he'd been training for several years, kind of went down initially this spiritualized version of Easter. It says of them, they were shocked and startled. They were thinking that they'd seen a ghost. And in the original Greek language that this account was written in, the same word that is translated here, ghost, uh, it also means spirit, as a spiritual being. And it's like the disciples are in the room, Jesus appears, and The evidence of their eyes is right there in front of them, but how do we make of this? What do we say? It's like he must be a disembodied form. It must be his ghost coming back from the dead. It must be him. He's he's passed away, but he's coming back to us from the other side. He's a spiritual force. It's some kind of, there's a spiritual thing going on here. We can't 
how do we understand this? It must be some kind of spiritual goings-on. Otherwise, how can we see him in front of us? And look what Jesus does. Jesus deliberately goes out of his way to impress upon them the fact there's nothing spiritual going on here, my friends. This is physical. He says to them, look at my hands and my feet. He's picking them specifically because they've got massive holes in them where he was nailed up to the cross. He's saying it's the same body. Look at them. Look at me. Touch me. You'll see I'm solid. I haven't got, I've got flesh and bones. Not like a spirit or a ghost has. He's gone out of his way to say, I want you to prove this to you. This is physical in front of you. I'm not a disembodied spirit. I'm not someone living on in your heart. I'm physically here. He's picking things up. The, the ultimate demonstration, I'm hungry. Give me something to eat. Here's a piece of fish and eating it. Which is quite some trick, isn't it? If you're going to do some sort of disembodied spirit thing. Not only have you got to actually move the fish through the air without a physical hand, you've got to disguise it at the moment you stick it into your mouth. It's like the one you do with kids, isn't it? When you pretend to eat your hand. You people are not going to be surprised by this. You people will be stunned. Up to a point. Here we go. Can you see what's happening? Yeah! <laughs> There's a point that it goes too far, doesn't it? But for the benefit of those listening uh, on the download, a hilarious visual demonstration took place. Jesus, Jesus went out of his way to determine that I'm physical. This is real. This is solid. He wanted to rule out a mystical explanation. He wanted to rule out a spiritual, supernatural explanation. He wanted to demonstrate beyond belief that it was, he was solid. He was physical. He was real. He's one away from saying, come on, give me your best shot. Look, I can take it. He wants them to know this is physical. And understandably so, this was terrifying for the disciples. This was not a comforting, reassuring Easter message. This was something that shocked them. It says they were startled and frightened. The word translated startled. Actually, a better translation would be terrified. Startled means Jesus kind of appeared and went, boo. And they went, oh, oh, the shock you gave me. The reality is the blood drains from their faces. They feel sick to the stomach and they're dizzy and they don't know if they can continue. My whole world has shifted because he's right in front of me and he's solid. He's holding things. This is understandable, isn't it? Imagine if someone you knew was physically dead and buried showed up in the room and said, hello. How would you feel? Comforted, reassured, inspired? You think, you know, spring does follow winter. No, these guys struggled to believe, even after the physical display. They couldn't get their heads around it. I've got some sympathy with them. They went for the spiritual approach because it was the only thing that made any sense to their minds. I really sympathize with it. We struggle to believe when we read the Easter story, don't we? We, we, we resort to the spiritualized view of Easter because somehow, difficult though it is, it's more easy to believe in this view of physically coming back from the dead. We struggle to believe the real message of Easter because it's so outside our normal range of experience. But like these guys, we have to follow the evidence. For them, the evidence was right in front of their eyes. It was hard not to follow the evidence. He's standing there waving hands with holes in them, asking for a piece of fish and inviting them to take a shot at him. Physical, unreal. They, ha- they just had to go with it. For us, though, I think we've got a wealth of evidence we can investigate as well. We've got to ask ourselves, and I'm going to ask it shortly in this message, how on earth do you explain the birth of Christianity? 
a faith that at its fundamentals believes a dead man physically came back to life. How do you explain? This happened in Jerusalem, the same city where shortly before they had executed Jesus and buried his body in a tomb and sealed it shut. How do you explain the fact that the tomb was empty? There's no body. There's no, there's no, there's no, you can't just pull him out and say, oh, here he is. It must be his spirit living on. How do you explain the fact that disciples were transformed from cowards hiding in abject fear to people boldly on the same streets that Jesus was executed on, preaching that he was alive and risen from the dead, unsuccessfully opposed by the authorities? How do you explain all the occurrences after Jesus died where he appeared to people physically, resurrection appearance, including his own mother and his own brothers? If this is a fraud, it's got to be pretty impressive to fool his mother and his brothers. How do you explain all these things? We have to follow the evidence, whether we like it or not. The disciples' reaction to Easter gives us a real clue as to who Easter should be to us. They were terrified. They were shocked. They were startled. And it tore their worldview apart. If your view of Easter is it's safe, it's tame, it's comfortable, I would suggest you haven't understood the message of Easter. Secondly, I want us to see that Easter is not a myth. Whilst I wanted us to see, first of all, that Jesus physically rose from the dead, I want us to see that Jesus really rose from the dead. Many people try and tame the message of Easter by mythologizing it away, by saying, you know, well, well, actually, at the very start, all that happened is people were inspired by Jesus. And they would say these documents that we read, they were written hundreds and hundreds of years later after a legend had gradually grown up and developed. Generation after generation passed the message of Jesus on and they would add a little bit on each time. It would start off, Jesus died and he was a very inspiring man. And then the next generation would say, Jesus died, he was a very inspiring man, but his ideals live on. And the next generation would say, he died, he was a very inspiring man. And then spiritually he's with us. And then somewhere along the line, the legend took on flesh and bones. Then, you know, I think he wasn't just spiritually with us. I think he was really with us. Wow, yeah, that could be great, couldn't it? And 300 years later, you find people writing this kind of message down. Some people say it was a deliberate deception. Hundreds of years went by and then religious people said, you know, wouldn't it be brilliant if we could say something even more exciting? about Jesus. Let's insert some bits about him rising from the dead physically. And lots and lots of people, particularly in our culture today, would take this view. You may take this view. You may be be, be thinking, I'm very comfortable with Easter Rich. I, I know that this is a legend that grew up over hundreds and hundreds of years. I want us to see that it's not possible to hold that view with any kind of intellectual integrity. It's not possible to hold that view of Jesus's resurrection once we start engaging with the facts. Luke's gospel, the gospel account that I was reading from this morning, was written at the very latest, 64-65 AD. That's a maximum, absolute maximum, of 30 years after Jesus' execution. Which you may think, 30 years, a lot can happen in 30 years. The legends grow in 30 years. They don't. They take much longer than that. Those of you who are my age, think back 30 years. What are we talking? 1985. You know, the era of shocking haircuts, appalling clothes, the same sort that today's youth seem to be copying without learning from the mistakes of their forefathers. (laughs) Bob Geldof swearing on telly with the first Live Aid. Boris Becker, aged about four and a half, winning his first Wimbledon title. Dire Straits cheesing it up with money for nothing. We could go back to the future with Marty McFly. Thatcher takes on the minors. Some of us doesn't seem so long ago, does it now? No. Some of us long for those days, don't we? (laughs) However, I don't think an actually sociologist and anthropologist would tell us that kind of time is not sufficient for a myth or a legend to grow up. And remember, this is days before the internet. 
So it doesn't, it doesn't count that someone posted something in 2002 and then we recirculated it over and over again and then we thought it was true. It takes hundreds of years for myths and legends to grow up and yet we've got a document written at most 30 years after Jesus' death saying he was physically resurrected. And actually this isn't even the earliest account. We've got letters written several years before this speaking about already the tradition that Jesus rose from the dead. When we look at the earliest Christian literature, we trace it. It's right back there at the start that Jesus physically rose from the dead. The idea that this developed over time is just not plausible when we look at the facts. Why do you think, for example, in this account it says broiled fish? Why do you think it says he he took and ate some broiled fish? I don't know what broiled fish is. It sounds like boiled fish that's gone wrong. Does anyone know what broiled is? Someone must. Silver. Grilled. It's American-Canadian way of grilling fish. So with a lot of fat and and kind of breadcrumbs and things. Yes, okay. It, It exists. It's a real method. Why do you think he says broiled slash grilled fish? Why not just he ate some food? If his point is to prove that Jesus was physically real, why doesn't it just say he, and he, and he waved his hands and he ate some food? Why does he say broiled fish? I think it says broiled fish because that's how they cooked the fish that morning. Because this is an eyewitness account. Because when you look at eyewitnesses' accounts, they don't say generic things. The man appeared to be wearing clothes, had some sort of hairstyle, and was carrying an object. I saw, him, I saw him eating food and then conversing with other persons. Eyewitness accounts give you little bits of detail. He was wearing a weird red jumper and he had a funny spiky haircut and he was eating a piece of broiled fish. I know it was broiled because I looked it up in a book and it said broiled. Sort of, sort of American-Canadian way of cooking for the uninformed amongst you. Luke tells us right at the beginning his gospel is a carefully researched investigation into eyewitnesses' accounts. That's why it's so full of eyewitness detail that you wouldn't bother putting in if you were making it up. The other thing that really strikes us when we're looking at this and thinking, is this a reliable document written at the time? And I don't know whether this this struck you at the time or not. The disciples are not portrayed very well here, are they? First of all, Jesus appears and they're startled and terrified. Despite the fact that he's repeatedly warned them before his execution, I'm going to die and rise from the dead. And when he appears, they're shocked. What is going on? Why didn't you not tell us about this beforehand? And then later on, even when he's taken pains to show, look, I'm physical, it's physical, it says they still didn't believe it. If you were writing a document that was going to be a forgery, which you were going to use to base a whole religious system upon, which is what some people try and think this document is, I think you would put the founding fathers in a good light, wouldn't you? You know, it's like writing the history of North America, isn't it? And, and making the Pilgrim Fathers like the Chuckle Brothers. They're, they're just turning up, they can't do anything right. Should we put this here? Oh no, I've fallen over. It's carrying ladders and hitting people on the head. Well, the disciples are consistently portrayed throughout the Gospels as being slightly ineffective and bungling. It reassures me because I find myself just like them. They're constantly, in inopportune moments, asking for food and saying, we're tired, can we have a nap? I think they're portrayed like that because they were real people. And this is really what they did. They weren't fictitious creations that were going to build a kind of a a, a religious empire on. And it's carefully preserved. When we compare the thousands, literally thousands of New Testament documents that we have, we find that this has been painstakingly and accurately preserved and passed on down the generations. So we have absolute confidence that what we read is what was originally written, that what was actually described by the people who were there. 
I understand why we go for a myth, because a mythological view is easier to believe, isn't it? It's much easier to believe. Oh, yeah, it kind of gradually, like a kind of rolling snowball, it gathered weight and eventually got to the point where it risen from the dead. But we can't hold that view with intellectual integrity. How does the legend view explain the explosive growth of early Christianity? And you could say, well, because they were superstitious and primitive back there, and they didn't have our modern scientific approaches. So when someone said someone rose from the dead, everyone jumped at the opportunity. Except that wasn't the case. In the culture that Christianity began, which was a Jewish subculture of the Roman Empire, nobody believed in physical resurrection from the dead. Nobody. It was just like today. Today we don't believe it because we say scientifically we know that's just not possible. We've done the medical tests. We know if you're dead, you don't come back to life. It doesn't happen. Back then, they knew it as well. All the Greek thinking, the majority of the, the Roman population, the Greek philosophy was very clear. A human being is a soul trapped in a body. The body was like a prison to them. And you longed for, if you understood the world correctly, the day when you were going to die and your soul could be free and escape from the prison of the body. Nobody saw the spirit, the soul, going back into the body. That's better. Got that back on board. That would be unthinkable to them. If you said to a Greek, a Roman, you said, do you know what, someone died and then their body came back to life, they'd say, that's awful and impossible. Our whole aim in life is to escape from the body. The Jewish population, who didn't share many of the beliefs with the Greeks and the Romans, their view was, oh, there will be a day when there's a physical resurrection. It'll be the last day of the world when God shows up to wrap everything up. So if you go out with the earliest Christian message, Jesus rose from the dead, and you spoke to a Roman citizen, uh, someone with, with a Greek understanding of the world, and said, Jesus physically rose from the dead, they said, that's ridiculous, it's impossible. If you went out to a Jewish person and said, Jesus physically rose from the dead, that's ridiculous, it's too soon. No one in the whole Roman Empire is ready for a message where someone physically rises from the dead. So why did it spread so rapidly? Why did it spread like wildfire? To the point where just a couple of hundred years later it had taken over as the dominant narrative and toppled every other worldview in, in the Roman and known world. How can that happen in a place where no one physically believes it's possible unless he physically rose from the dead and tore apart people's pre-existing worldviews? And actually even today where we would say scientifically we know it's impossible... Listen, even Christians don't believe that Jesus was lying in the tomb and suddenly his body just came back to life. Christians believe that God raised Jesus from the dead. And if you don't believe in God, that's a tall order. But if and just if God does exist, why is that so hard for him to do? If God's real, he can do all sorts of things. And if God's real and wants to communicate to himself, what better way of doing it than by doing something utterly impossible in the midst of humanity? But I don't think it's a question of whether we like it or can explain it or even whether we believe it. I think it's a question of, is it true? And the only way we're going to find out as if it's true is by investigating, opening our minds to see where the evidence takes us. But let me finish by telling you that Christianity believes that Easter is not yet finished. I want to tell you that it matters that Jesus rose from the dead. This is not just a message of historical interest. Well, 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 I hadn't realized Turns out what I thought was a spiritual message of hope. He literally rose from the dead. Well, that's fascinating. 2,000 years ago, must remember to take some GCSE history lessons. The Easter is not an inspiring message from the past. Easter changes everything now because Jesus is alive. If Easter is true, Jesus is alive, literally, physically, having died and rose from the dead. Jesus broke death. 
It wasn't that he went into the grave and came back out again. Jesus died, he went into the grave, and he came back out the other side. He tore a hole through death that we can follow him through if we choose to connect with him. Jesus described himself as the light of the world. If you were there on Good Friday and you saw him nailed up to the cross, the blood dripping out of the holes in his hands and feet and side, his breath slowly leaking out of his body, you would have seen the light of the world snuffed out. It says in the gospel accounts, even the sky turned black. When Jesus rose from the dead, literally, physically rose from the dead, he proved that he was inextinguishable. He proved that nothing was going to hold him back. Let me ask you another question. Sorry to keep firing them at you. Why do you think Christians lost the tomb of Jesus? And they did. Christians lost the tomb of Jesus. They had no idea where he was buried. I know there's one you can go and visit in Jerusalem today, and you can go and see it. That was discovered in 1867. A long time after Jesus had died. And it was basically a tomb in a garden. So could it be the one? Why not? Let's take a punt on it. We have written records indicating that by AD 150, just over 100 years after Jesus had died, no Christian knew where Jesus' tomb was. And that was odd because in that culture, they, they still do to a certain extent. People would venerate the tomb of holy people and sages and wise men and prophets. In, in the way that, for example, you can go and see Muhammad's tomb, and it's venerated, and, and this is the place we go to visit him. Why do you think none of the early Christians bothered going back to the tomb of Jesus? Why do you think no one set up a shrine there, maybe put little pictures there, went to pray there? Why do you think no one bothered remembering where it was? They venerated the tombs of every other religious teacher. Why do you think no one bothered with Jesus' tomb? Why do you bother with the chrysalis when you've got the butterfly? The early Christians couldn't care less where Jesus was buried because they knew he was alive and he was with them. They knew he was with them physically for over a month as he appeared, a physical body. Look, touch me, see, holes, hands. Give me some more fish, still hungry. And on an ongoing basis after that, Jesus appeared to them by the Holy Spirit, with them in their hearts, changing them. This is the message of Jesus, not that Jesus is somehow there to inspire us. It's that Jesus is alive to connect with us. And to know us. The message of Jesus is that we can connect with God through Jesus. His death and his physical, real, actual, literal resurrection opens the way to us to connect with God. It's why we exist. We're here to know God. That's the point of our lives. That's where we find meaning and purpose and satisfaction and wholeness and stability. We try and tame God in the same way we try and tame Easter. We try and tame God by denying he's even there. There's no God out there. We try and tame God by buying him off with being good enough. I'm a good person. I look after my family. I give occasional token amounts of money to charitable funds. I'm a good enough person. I wouldn't wish any actual harm on anyone. We try and tame God and buy him off with our spirituality and our religious events. Oh yeah, I pray. Oh yeah, I meditate. I try to think good thoughts. All of this is buying God off. It's taming him. It's trying to bring him down to something we can control. The message of Jesus is that Jesus rose from the dead. And that through him we can connect to God on the basis of how good he is. On the basis of his spiritual and religious deeds. On the basis of his relationship with God. The message of Easter is that we accept that in dying and rising from the dead, Jesus has done something fundamental that allows us to reconnect with God. And to become a Christian is to both believe that and embrace it. And they're not the same thing. 
It's not even good enough today if you're sitting here thinking, yeah, I do believe Jesus physically rose from the dead. Have you embraced it? Is this part of your life? There's a world of difference. Put me in a plane with a guy with a parachute. Say, do you believe that parachute will get him safely to the ground? Safe as houses, off you go. Have I embraced it? Not in a million years. I'm going to be crying and screaming and holding on to the kind of luggage rack at the other side of the plane. Many people do that with the Christian message of Easter. They say, oh, believe it, but you've never embraced it. You've never taken it to become part of your life. Becoming a Christian is not so much saying, I'm going to, I'm going to take a key from you, Jesus, that unlocks a kind of religious, spiritual side of my life. It's saying, I'm going to give you the keys of my whole life. I'm going to give you access to every area of the whole of my life that you, Jesus, are in control. I'm going to commit myself to my life with you. That's what becoming a Christian is, and it's living a God-centered life with God back at the center, the way we were designed to live, not displacing him with all sorts of other things or trying to buy him off or tame him. The message of Easter is not a heavenly insurance policy, but because certain events happened 2,000 years ago, whatever happens to me, I'm going to be okay when I die. The message of Jesus is you personally can and need to reconnect with God through Jesus. And that brings me finally to baptism which we're going to be doing in a minute here. Baptism is an acted out picture of being joined to Jesus, of embracing who Jesus is at the heart of your life. In baptism, you're going to see this morning, guys are laid down and then raised back up. It's a picture of just as Jesus was laid down in the tomb and his, and his life died, and then he's raised up from the dead. It's a picture that as we become Christians and join Jesus, our old life dies And we're raised up to a new life. It's why these guys committing themselves to Jesus are going to tell you their stories shortly. It's different. I'm different. It's changed who I am. Because coming a Christian is your old life dies and a new life rises inside. It's a picture of being washed clean. That's why we use water. It's a picture of all the, the, the kind of the dirt and the guilt and the shame and the stuff we've done that we're not that proud of and that separates us from God gets gets washed away from us. Being baptized doesn't make you a Christian. No one's becoming a Christian here this morning. It's a picture that you go through to show what has happened to you, to show that you've given your allegiance to Jesus, that you've joined him in his death and his great resurrection. And so I just want to nail it right at the end. The message of Easter, it's not safe, it's not tame, it's not comfortable, it's shocking. It stretches our minds and forces us to rethink fundamentals. It's that Jesus has physically died and risen from the dead so that we can connect with God, so that you can connect with God. And it, and it demands something of us. That's why we try and tame it. That's why we go for the, the kind of the, very, the, the, the tame, the basic, the spiritualized, mythologized versions of Easter because they don't demand anything of us. But if Jesus is really alive, if he's risen from the dead, then there are implications. Suddenly we know that God is real. Suddenly know that we are accountable to God for our lives. Suddenly we know we've got to make a decision on Jesus. And one of the things as a church we do is we want to just make it as easy as possible for people to investigate and with intellectual integrity come to a decision about who Jesus is. But I would just want to finish with this. Look at the result. See, we start off these disciples startled, terrified, frightened. They end up joy and amazement. That's what people find when they find that Jesus is really alive and they can reconnect with God through him. They don't find a life of religious drudgery or dullness or observance. They don't find they've been diminished and repressed 
by putting their faith in Jesus, they find a life of joy and amazement that God loves me and that his love is poured out into my life. And that when we come to Christ, everything changes. And I believe we're going to hear some of those stories in a moment. Thanks for listening.